If I began this morning by telling you that there is one thing that you've got to know, one thing that's the most important thing for all of life, I wonder if you'd be suspicious. We hear these kinds of ads, we're naturally suspicious, right? Here's the secret. Here's the diet plan. Here's the supplement to take. Here's the financial path to success. Here's the one thing that you've been missing that if you know this thing, your, your life will be great. Right? The, the internet is full of, full of clickbait promising us these kinds of one thing solutions. Normally it's right to be suspicious, but this morning we come to Christ in our text in Luke chapter 10 and 11, where Christ himself says there is one thing that is necessary. This morning we're going to be looking at Luke 10, 25 through 11, 13. But before we read through the whole passage, we're going to, I'm just going to read through part of it. The part where Luke, I mean, Luke records Jesus' visit to the home of Martha. As he's on the way to Jerusalem, starting in verse 38, we read that he enters this village. Read with me Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word. We're in this section of Luke that began last week in nine, chapter 9, verse 51, where Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So he's, he's still on this journey to Jerusalem. Uh, clearly, Luke is choosing to arrange the material in a way that he sees fit, because now in this passage, Jesus is in Bethany, which is near Jerusalem. So it seems like Luke has kind of amalgamated stories from this journey to tell us about Jesus' journey. But here he enters this village, and he's received and welcomed by Martha. If you were with us last week, this should be a notable thing to you, right? Because when Jesus sent out his disciples, he he spoke about how they'd be received in some places and they'd be granted hospitality. They'd be given food to eat and a place to stay when, when there was a person of peace there. But in other places, they wouldn't be received. They'd be rejected. They would not be given a place to stay or food to eat and they were to, to shake off their dust of their feet on those places. And so receiving Jesus is a big deal. When Martha welcomes Jesus, it's, it's at least kind of related to that same word of receiving him from the previous passages we've looked at. She's doing something notably good. She's receptive. She's welcoming Jesus. But of course, as we enter Martha's home and we, we see what's going on, we see that though she welcomed him, She's in danger of missing him. She welcomes him. She's come to him. She's happy to have him. But she doesn't like the way her sister is welcoming him. 
she's so bold that she gives Jesus a command. That word tell, tell her what to tell her to help me is in the imperative. She's ordering Jesus around. Jesus, Mary isn't doing her fair share. This sounds very familiar to parents, right? Tell her to help. And Jesus answered that she's troubled and anxious about many things, but she's missed the one thing that is necessary. And Mary has chosen that thing. She's chosen to sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word. And Jesus says that this is the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is Christ himself that Mary has chosen. He is the one thing that is necessary. And this is the key to being a disciple. Before we serve Jesus, we must be served by Jesus. We must be taught and fed by him. We saw this earlier in chapter 10 when Jesus' disciples return from their missionary journey and they're excited that they have authority over the demons. And what does Jesus say? Don't rejoice that you have this authority, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is where discipleship begins. It begins with Jesus himself, the good portion, the one necessary thing. And we'll see that that word good is an important theme of our passage. Jesus is good. God is good. Jesus is God's goodness to us. You know, in our world today, we have trouble with this concept of goodness. If we hear about something good, we think automatically, well, the other shoe is going to drop, you know. Today we hear the story of, you know, the viral video of the fireman saving the kitten. And tomorrow we're going to hear the story of how he's abusing taxpayers' resources to become a YouTube star. Right? Nothing is really good in our culture. But God is good. The Lord is good. We've already read that today in Psalm 100. The Lord is good and Jesus is his goodness to us. So as we come to this passage, we're forced to reckon with, have we tasted Christ's goodness? Have we chosen the good portion? Or have we made a move like Martha? Where there's some way we've, we've welcomed Jesus, we approve of him, we agree with him, but we somehow have missed him. In this passage, we're going to look at three ways that we might miss Jesus. We might miss Jesus by knowing without loving. Knowing without loving. We might miss Jesus by serving without hearing. Serving without hearing. And we can miss Jesus by praying without trusting. We're going to look at these three ways that we might miss Jesus so that we can make sure that we sit at Jesus' feet and choose the good portion. So the first way of missing Jesus, we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells in Luke 10, 25 through 37. This man comes to him, a lawyer stands up, it says, to put Jesus to the test. As we see, this man was an expert in the Jewish law. That's what being a lawyer meant in this context. 
He was very knowledgeable about what God's law says. He's even insightful. He and Jesus agree on a lot of things. He has knowledge. But does he have mercy? Does he know the mercy of Christ? And does he show that mercy to others? If we have knowledge but no mercy, we've missed Jesus. So let's read about this lawyer and the parable, beginning at chapter 10, verse 25. This is on page 868, if you're using the Bibles provided. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. As we see Jesus interacting with this expert in the law, we see Jesus' masterful insight into people. He tells these parables that invite the person in while then exposing their heart. And that's what he does with this man. We don't know a lot about this man. We know he's this expert in the law. But Luke does give us some important details that he was coming to test Jesus is the first one. On the one hand, godly people do test new teachers, don't they? They want to prove all things and hold fast to what is true. So maybe there's something legitimate about someone testing Jesus. He's a new teacher on the scene. If you're here to investigate Jesus, that's a good way to spend your time. You should take Jesus seriously. But there's also a a negative element here, an element of setting yourself up over Jesus as his evaluator. Jesus has already been revealed to us, and Luke is no ordinary teacher. He's revealed himself as, as God, come in the flesh to his people. And so there's a danger in this man's testing. It It suggests a proud stance to Jesus. And the interaction Jesus has with him bears out that proud stance. Once he and Jesus agree on the centrality of these two commands, love God and love neighbor, these quotations of scripture, 
Luke says that this man desired to justify himself. Instead of submitting to Jesus, when Jesus said, do this and live, the lawyer wanted to find a loophole to justify his way of loving God and neighbor. And he asked this specific question, who is my neighbor? Which is probably a clue about how he wanted to justify himself. Looking for a clue about limiting this command to love neighbor. Probably he wants to to justify the fact that he thinks some people are not deserving of his love. There are people in the world who are so defiled and sinful that they're not worthy of his care. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? Are you starting to see what it looks like to have a lot of knowledge, but to be missing Christ? This man knew a lot. He, he knows so much that when Jesus quizzes him, he gives the right answer. Love God and love neighbor are the two most important commands. Knowledge was not the problem. His case, his problems were pride and self-righteousness. Looking for loopholes for our love. And so to help this lawyer, Jesus tells this parable. This parable about a man who falls among robbers. The ethnic identities of this parable are really important, right? The, the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who's robbed is, is very likely a Jew from Jerusalem. And the, the two men who pass, the priest and the Levite, obviously they're Jews. They should have been some of the most knowledgeable. They were involved in service at the temple. And that may be the, the reason that they avoid the man. To, to touch someone who was dead especially would have made them unclean. It would have rendered them unable to serve for a period of time. So it may have been their very expertise in the law that they felt compelled them not to help the man that seemed to be dead. Better not to risk it. Whatever the case, they see this terribly injured man and they cross to the other side of the road. They don't want to get too close. And they pass him by. The man who comes along who's a Samaritan it would be a, a sworn enemy of someone from Jerusalem. In the year 127 BC, I believe it was, the, the high priest of the Jews in Jerusalem uh, led a raid to destroy the Samaritan place of worship on Mount Gerizim. There was deep-seated bad blood between Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans. It was animosity that ran both ways. So when we see a story about a Jew and a Samaritan interacting, we expect conflict. But Jesus tells this story of a Samaritan who saw the man from Jerusalem and had compassion. Maybe he didn't even know he was a Jerusalemite, right? He's just on the road. He's bloody and beaten. But he doesn't care. He just shows compassion. And he, Jesus fills the story with specific details about the Samaritan's care. Right? He, he pours oil and wine on the wounds. He puts them on his own animal. Jesus says in verse 34, he took care of him. And then again, when he delivers him to the innkeeper, he says, take care of him. He took care of him. He's filled with compassion when he sees the man. He leaves money for the man to be cared for, and he says, it's an open tab. You know, you can run my credit card at the end. 
the Samaritan proves to be a man of extraordinary compassion for this helpless, left-for-dead man. And when Jesus finishes the parable, he asks this lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer's summary is insightful. The one who showed him mercy. I mean, mercy is exactly the right description for what the Samaritan did. He was merciful. And it was costly mercy. It wasn't just kind of well wishes, like hashtag get better. Like he cared for him in all kinds of ways. The Samaritan's mercy was not limited by ethnic or religious prejudices. This parable packs a punch for this lawyer who's looking for loopholes. On the first level, it asks all of disciples who would follow Christ, are you this merciful? Do you show mercy the way this Samaritan did to, to people without regard for their, their ethnicity, their, your, your personal prejudices? Do they melt away when, when you see someone in need? Are you merciful? Do you take care of others in costly ways? The lawyer who spoke to Jesus is being confronted, right? He's asked this question, who is my neighbor? And, and Jesus has told him, your neighbor is the Samaritan. Your neighbor is anybody. Your neighbor is everyone. You owe them mercy and compassion. Go and do likewise. He's confronting this man. You have knowledge. Do you have mercy? But that leads us to another level where this parable punches us in the gut. It says the kingdom of God is a kingdom marked by mercy. It's marked first and foremost by Jesus' own mercy for sinners. This lawyer wants to test Jesus, and Jesus has exposed this lawyer's lack of mercy. But the real question is not about the, the lawyer's lack of mercy, it's what it points to. That he has not received mercy from God. Right? Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So to know and worship Jesus is not simply to agree with Jesus about the law. It's not simply to have the same insight. It's to, be, it's to receive mercy from him. To be like one who's been left for dead and who's been cared for by Jesus at great cost to himself. Our misery moves Jesus to compassion. The Samaritan placed the helpless man on his own animal. Jesus takes our sin and, and places those burdens upon himself. He bears our shame. He takes our suffering on himself and he pays its price. So Jesus is telling us, if, if you find a lack of compassion, a lack of mercy in your own life, you need to ask the question, do I know Christ's mercy? Do I merely know a lot about the Bible? Or do I know Jesus? Have I been saved by him? Knowing without mercy, having knowledge without mercy, is a sign that you may have missed Jesus. One amazing thing about this parable is on how many levels it works. So it talks to us on this first level, who is your neighbor? Well, even your worst enemy is your neighbor. And then on the second level, it says, you will only love like Jesus loves when you've been loved by him, when you know his mercy. But then there's even a third level of meaning. 
it shows us the specific way that Christ reveals his mercy. When we look at these descriptions of the man who's robbed, that he falls among robbers, that he's beaten and stripped and left for dead, the other place these clusters of words show up is in the treatment of Christ himself. Right? Christ was, he fell among robbers. He was handed over to evil men. He was stripped naked and beaten. That's the extent of Christ's love. He suffered and died a shameful, exposing death. That's how much Christ loves us, and that's the Savior we need. If we, if we see Christ in his suffering, we say, I'm going to pass by on the side. I don't want to be associated with a suffering Savior. I don't want to be saved by someone who had to die for me. Then we have no share in Christ. To, to come to Christ, we have to humble our pride. To have Jesus as our good portion to have the one thing that is necessary, we must trust that his death was for us. We deserve to be nailed and bloodied on the tree, but he was for our sake. Jesus is moved by compassion to allow himself to be handed over to suffer and die at the hands of evil men. So Jesus is only the good portion to us when we stop testing him and start trusting him. Having a lot of knowledge of God without knowing Christ's mercy, that will save no one. But those who draw near to Christ find that he is the compassionate Savior. He takes care of us. He even takes care of his enemies. That's the one thing that is necessary that's the good portion, to be saved by the crucified Christ. We must know his mercy and show mercy. We've already glanced at the second example of someone who's in danger of missing Christ as we looked at Martha, but we want to look more closely at her. She's in danger of serving without hearing. Verse 39 says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching. I think that phrase, listening to his teaching, may sound to our ears like, well, she just heard an interesting talk. You know, she's got some good podcasts queued up, and she was listening to that teaching. But I don't think that's an accurate summary of what she's doing here. That posture of sitting at Jesus' feet, she's listening to the word of Christ. That, that word teaching is just translating the Greek word logos, which you may know. It just means word. She listened to his word. And in Luke, hearing Christ's word is a big deal. It's a synonym for faith. So in the parable of the sower, the, the ones who were saved, the good soil, they are the ones who, hearing the word, hold fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. A few verses later in chapter 8, Jesus says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Mary is showing us what a true disciple is. And this, this is not Mary the mother of Jesus. This is Mary Martha's sister. She's a true disciple here because she treasures the word of Christ. That's what true disciples do. That we treasure the gospel of Christ. We treasure Jesus himself. 
And Jesus even includes this promise here that he is a treasure that cannot be taken away. Martha was so busy with her service that she didn't hear the word of Christ. This is such a deceptive path. What sounds more noble and worthwhile than serving Christ? I mean, there's so much good work that needs to be done. You could fill your calendar with serving. Many good things to do. And we can imagine sometimes that perhaps at this service, that's what saves us. That's what really matters, that we do something. I mean, it feels good to do something. To volunteer at church or to make a a meal for a sick friend. To attend this Bible study. All good things to do. But it's easy to do them for the wrong reasons. We might commit ourselves to service because doing stuff flatters our pride and our sense of self-sufficiency. We can commit ourselves to service maybe thinking that doing a bunch of good things will make up for some bad things we've done. Or we can commit ourselves to service because service is, is straightforward and simple. You don't have to reflect a lot on your need for salvation. You can just do something. We can serve for the wrong reasons. It's fair to say that Martha was not only busy, she's, she was passionate about her service. She's confident that she's on the right track as a disciple, right? She's so confident, she's willing to tell Jesus that he needs to tell Mary to get on board with Martha's style of service. You see here, though, that passionate, well-intentioned service will not save you without treasuring the word of Christ. Notice that Jesus says that the good portion Mary chose will not be taken away from her. What does that imply about our acts of service done in the flesh? What value do they have? Ask yourself, do you want to go to Christ on Judgment Day and to say, yeah, yeah, I didn't really treasure your word, but look at all the hours I spent serving in the church, all the hours I spent volunteering for that, that nonprofit that does such good work. Acts done in service, in pride, will not survive Christ's judgment. They will be taken away from you. But Christ's gospel promises will not be taken away. Salvation is a gift of God by grace. We can't earn it by our serving. We can't deserve to be accepted by Christ. We must receive his salvation as a gift. We must attend to his word. Sit at his feet. Hear the gospel promises and believe. So we will miss Christ if we serve without hearing. To serve Christ truly, we must first be served by him. If he doesn't serve us, he says to Peter, we have no share in him. We must be taught by him. We must be saved by trusting in his gracious promises. This is the good portion that will not be taken away. Don't miss Christ by serving without hearing. The final way that we might miss Christ is by praying without trusting. In chapter 11, the disciples see Jesus praying, and so they ask him 
Teach us to pray, Lord. It may be that there's a bit of a sharp edge to their requests. They say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I, I wonder if they're implying there's something you've missed. The disciples of John, they've got the A-plus curriculum, but we're lacking because you haven't taught us to pray yet. Whatever the case, Jesus does teach them to pray. And this is where we get Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. But Jesus does more than teach them to pray. He gives them a, a discourse on prayer. He seems to imply that they have a problem of, of faithless praying. Of praying without trusting in the generosity and the goodness of God. Prayer that doubts. Prayer that's without trusting. Misses Christ. The good portion. So let's read verses 1 through 13 together. And as we read, notice how often the word give and gift occur in this passage. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray is centered on the generosity of God. I mean, first of all, God is addressed as Father here. And calling God Father is a privilege that Christ has himself as the Son of God and the, the Son of David. It's a privilege that sinners only have as they are saved by Christ and adopted into Christ Jesus. So to call God Father is to, is to play upon his generosity. He is the good Father, the heavenly Father at the end of this passage. And all of the requests here magnify God's generosity. So first we pray for the coming of God's kingdom, which is a, a request for God's rule and reign to be made manifest on the earth. It's a request for salvation to come to sinners, for the gospel to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The request for daily bread magnifies God as the great provider who, who clothes the flowers of the field and feeds the birds of the air, and he, he feeds all his creatures. And so we should pray and trust that God will care for us. We magnify the generosity of God when we ask him to provide for our daily needs. At the center of the prayer is a prayer for forgiveness of sins. So this is not a prayer 
for righteous people to pray. This is a prayer for sinners to pray who need forgiveness. And yet the sinner who prays this prayer is a redeemed sinner. It's the sinner who has been forgiven much and so forgives those who sin against him. We seek to resist temptation as obedient servants of the Lord. So this prayer is centered upon the generosity and the lordship of Christ. Each week we try to incorporate this prayer through our worship service, not by reciting it, but just in the structure of our service. So the the first petition is, hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy. We, We do this by praising God in our prayer of adoration. We praise God for who he is. We hallow God's name at the beginning of our service. And then we pray for his kingdom to come in our prayer uh, for the people of God, where we we pray for other churches. We pray for our own church and our own gospel witness. We pray for our daily bread. We pray for God to provide us a building, for him to heal the sick, to provide jobs. We pray for our needs. We pray that God will be generous to our neighbors by, by working through good governors. We pray that our leaders will bring justice and punish evil. During the Lord's Supper each week, we pray for forgiveness of sins. We confess our sins and we declare God's forgiveness and the assurance of pardon. We pray that as those forgiven, we would lead lives of holiness. So again, we don't pray the words of the Lord's Prayer each week, but the Lord's Prayer is a pattern for Christian worship. I'd encourage you to adopt this pattern even in your own devotional life. You're sometimes struggling with what to pray for. You, you could recite the prayer itself, but you could think through, how, how can I begin by praising God today? How can I pray for God's kingdom, for, for the gospel to be proclaimed? Pray, of course, for your daily needs. Pray for forgiveness. Confess your sin. Pray that the Lord would keep you from temptation. Pray this prayer for others. As you think about praying through the directory, you could pray elements of the Lord's prayer for one another. So this is a pattern for all of our worship. Is it a pattern for your worship? Is your life patterned after the the Lord's prayer? The Lord not only calls us to pray this prayer, but he calls us to the God who's behind this prayer. The good God. The God who gives gifts to his children. So if if we need encouragement in our prayer life, Jesus would have us look to the goodness and generosity of God himself. Because that's where he goes with his disciples. He, he tells them this mini parable about a guy who goes to his friend's house after bedtime, right? After the doors have been locked up for the night. Have you ever gotten a knock on the door after the doors have been locked? It's, it's really jarring. Like, Lindsay and I had this happen a few months ago, maybe last year. And we were like, what are these people doing knocking on our door this late? And it turned out we left our garage door open and our friends were just trying to tell us that. We were initially so offended though, you know, like why bother us? You know, they, it's a symbol of someone who has no like personal boundaries, right? To come, come by after 10 or whatever. Well, he, Jesus is saying, this is a way to approach God. This impudent man who comes, he's got no sense of the right boundaries. The doors are locked, the kids are in bed, and he's, he's asking his friend for some bread. That's how we should approach God. Approach God in every circumstance. And it, it forces us to ask, you know, do I assume when I approach God that, that he is the grumpy old man? You know, he's, he doesn't want to get out of bed. He's just yelling at me, go away. Or do we know him to be the God who's going to open the door? 
That's where this little parable lands. It's in verse 9 and 10. And, and look how Jesus repeats the punchline. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And in case you didn't get it, everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Come to God and ask. Come at the right time and the wrong time and every time in between. Let nothing hinder you from coming to your good Father and asking. If you ask, it will be given to you. He's the God who gives generously to his children. Is this the view of God that drives your prayer life? Do you think of God this way? I have to admit, I'm tempted to think, well, God doesn't want me to ask this. Or I, I, I've sinned too much lately to come to God right now. I, I haven't done everything right. I've not prepared for this well. You know, I, I can't ask for this right now. I didn't study for the test. How can I ask for a good grade on the test? Jesus tells us to be like this friend who comes when it seems inappropriate to come. Come and ask. You don't have to get yourself together in order to ask God for things. Simply come and ask. Seek and you will find him. This isn't a promise that every request will be met with a yes, but that God will be with you and for you. That's the kind of father God is. He's the kind of father that when you show up at the door at the wrong time, he opens it. He's generous. And from this, Jesus launches into another mini parable. He says that even sinful fathers know how to good, give good gifts to their kids, right? We just had Christmas. Hopefully you kids got some good gifts from your parents. They know how to give you a good gift. They know what you like and what you want. Even sinful fathers know this. How much more generous is our Father in heaven? He's infinitely more generous as infinitely more righteous as he is than your sinful parents, kids, that's how much better he is at giving good gifts. He is goodness itself. He gives good gifts to his children. We should note that when Jesus wants to show us how great, how infinitely good God is at gift-giving, he talks about the giving of his Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is God's great, generous gift. And it's no contradiction to say that this is God's great, generous gift, and Christ is God's great, generous gift. Theologians have spoken of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as the, the two hands of the Father. So the Father sends the Son to die in the place of sinners, and He sends the Spirit to open our eyes to give new life so that we can believe and receive the Son. The Spirit applies the work of the Son to our lives. The Father is the generous one who gives the Son and the Spirit. This is God's good gift. And it's infinitely better than the best gift you got for Christmas. His gift is the good portion. It's ours by faith in Christ. This, says Jesus, is who we pray to 
the generous giver of good gifts. He says, pray with conviction. Pray with the passion. Pray with the consistency and the the repetitiveness that shows that you believe that God is good. That he will answer when you ask him. Jesus is God's good portion for us, for us, the Savior who died in our place. Jesus is the word of promise that God speaks to us, that sinners can be saved, the Father's good gift. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are made God's children. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, these good gifts can never be taken away from us. Jesus is the one thing, the good portion And it will never be taken away. Nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ your Lord. But it is possible to come to Jesus and miss out on him. If we're like that lawyer who comes with lots of knowledge, but knows nothing of the mercy of Christ. Or if we're like Martha, with lots of service, troubled about many things, but missing the one thing. We're missing the gospel that Christ preaches. Or if we're like those who, who maybe go through the motions of prayer, but don't believe that there's a good God who hears our prayers, who's been good to us in Christ. We miss him. We may be deceiving ourselves about our relationship with God if we, if we have knowledge without mercy. We may have missed the one thing, but that all the more should drive us to Christ, the good portion, God's great gift. Have you received him? If you receive him, he can never be taken away. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for your goodness. It's because of your goodness that we are here. Because Christ has come and died in our place. Because the Spirit has poured out the love of God into our hearts. We have responded in faith. We pray, Father, that we would not miss Christ. We pray that our our knowledge of God would spring from true knowledge of Christ's mercy. We pray that we would not busy ourselves with serving, thinking that we can earn our place. Instead, we would be served by Christ and hear his word. We pray that we would know you as our good, generous Father. We pray for help to believe these things ourselves and to encourage one another with these truths. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.